Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Welcome to Murderous Roots. I'm Denise. And I'm Zelda. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. My husband actually let me sleep in this morning and I needed it so much. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, it's so rare. I mean, I didn't get out of bed until like 10. Ah, nice. (laughs) I I mean, I haven't been able to do that since before having kids, not that often at least. Mm -hmm. And how are you today? I'm actually doing really well. A friend came over for lunch. And so we had a, you know, fairly socially distanced lunch. Mm -hmm. And then we were watching, we started watching this Star Trek um, Lower Decks show. Yes. That is so funny. And he hadn't seen it yet. So um, he got a, a nice giggle out of that. And um, I told him who our person's going to be today, and he was he was amazed. He's looking forward to hearing us when this finally goes up. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, I know you really love that show. It gives you the giggles. It does all the time. <laughs> <laughs> we all need shows that give us giggles. Mm-hmm. And one thing that my husband and I do because it's so stressful, you know, with everything going on in the world right now. So my husband and I, especially after a rough day with the kids, we'll go comedy, uh huh, and we'll turn on a stand up. Oh, fun. Oh, oh my last gosh. night we were checking out somebody new. I can't even remember his name, but we were giggling pretty good last night. Oh, that's awesome. I know this is a long one because there's so much and we'll see if this turns into a two-parter. Yeah. If we do, I'll figure out how to make that happen with our, um, oh, what you call it? Technology? <laughs> well, that too, but with how we um, organize the show, but I'll figure that out later. Um, But before we do get started, I do want to mention one correction from the last episode with Glenn Edward Rogers. Of course, I noticed it as I'm editing the episode, and I made the incorrect um, statement that Clara's father, no, Edna's father was Leander. Leander was Edna's grandfather. It was Clara's father. So for anybody who might call us out on that, it was a slip because it's easy to do when you have so many names running through your head. Mm -hmm. I will let you start. And I know you have a lot of information for us because there's nothing quite like Theodore Robert Bundy. There is not. And so I have to share with you, Ted Bundy is actually the first real serial serial killer that I'd ever heard about. So I remember seeing as a teenager, this news report about him getting love letters on death row. And all I could think of was what the hell? Some women are mighty stupid, you know? (laughs) Well, yeah, I remember him when he was, um, convicted or was it no when he was put to death because it was my senior year of high school oh yeah all in the news and it just caught my attention and three years before Mark Harmon was in a movie and you might bring that up later but it caught my mm-hmm. attention and that's where my love affair of serial killers began and mm-hmm. I should say it's trying to get in their heads I I was not somebody who would have sent a love letter to Ted <laughs> Thank God. Your mama raised you right. Well, I have to say, though, apparently the company of women was something Bundy easily attracted. Um, And, you know, he was fairly handsome if you didn't know he was a psychopath. And, you know, by all accounts, he was really smart. So 
I have to say there's so much around him. And in a lot of ways, he's become bigger than the person, you know, like his, his legend. And, you know, his murder spree and the accompanying drama from all of the trials and everything else just kind of captured the imagination of our nation like no other killer for decades. I mean, really. Yeah. And so I looked and there have been at least five TV shows, seven movies, and dozens of books, either biographical or fiction, based on Bundy. And probably the most famous of these is the book by Anne Rule, The Stranger Beside Me. Yes, if that a was a biography, one. yeah, it's a good one. Um, you know, she actually knew him and talked to him, and it's, it's crazy. Um, and that was published in 1980, while Bundy was still alive. And then it was later made into a movie where Bundy was played by Billy Campbell. So I... I could not help myself. I had to look up who else played Ted Bundy. I think it's a rite of passage in Hollywood <laughs> that at some point in your career, you have to play Ted Bundy because it's Mark Harmon, Michael Riley Burke, Carrie Elwes, Carrie Elwes, <laughs> the Princess Bride, Wesley. I know, but Wesley. he's so good in that role. It's so perfect. It's a little scary how good he is in that role. Yes. Um, James Marsters, you know, Spike from Buffy played yes. him, and Zach Efron. Which I didn't even know this movie. This just came out last year. Extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile. I watched and it. What was was it good? It was so good. Zach Efron was scary good. Really? I might yeah. watch it then. Is it super bloody? No, but I mean, okay. He it's like he becomes Bundy in so many ways. Oh you see gosh. the ugliness as mm -hmm. along with the attractiveness. No wonder he had to go do that travel around the world show to kind of get you know washed the stink of it all off, you know? <laughs> well, so it's hard to know where to even start because this man was prolific and there's so much information. So I'm just going to start with his juvie record. So his record was expunged when he turned 18, which is common across America. And personally, I'm very thankful that states do that. But he was arrested at least twice on burglary and auto theft, and he admitted to being able to afford his hobby of downhill skiing by stealing equipment and forging lift tickets. Now, many details of his childhood are still kind of fuzzy because Bundy lied a lot. Oh, yeah. So it's really difficult to ascertain what's true and what's fiction. So here's some things that we do know. After graduating from high school in 1965, Bundy attended the University of Puget Sound for one year before transferring to the University of Washington to study Chinese. In early 1968, he dropped out of college, and then he worked a series of minimum wage jobs. I have to say, I'm going to interject here, that I'm relying a lot on Wikipedia because it seemed to have the best sorts of timelines. So, he dropped out of college. He was working minimum wage jobs. So here's what caught my attention. He volunteered at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. And he became Arthur Fletcher's driver and bodyguard during Fletcher's campaign for lieutenant governor of Washington state. So he was far more involved in politics than I would have expected a serial killer to be. And then that August, he attended the 1968 Republican National Convention as a Rockefeller delegate. This is a little bit key because about then he broke up with his girlfriend, traveled to Colorado and then further east, visiting relatives in Arkansas and Philadelphia and enrolling for one semester at Temple University. It was at this time that Bundy visited an office of birth records and that becomes significant later on. So about this time is when he kind of starts killing people. <laughs> so 
But now he's focused and he seems to be goal oriented. He re-enrolls uh, in college as a psychology major and he became an honor student and was very well regarded by his professors. In 1971, he took a job at Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center, and that's where he met Anne Rule, who would eventually become his, um, his biographer. That and would launch her career. Absolutely. And the funny thing, too, is she mentions that she saw nothing disturbing in his personality at the time and described him as kind, solicitous, and empathetic. So I need to mention here that during this time, he's becoming increasingly involved in politics and crime prevention. He's basically murdering women in his spare time. And as I mentioned, that this extremely polarized behavior kind of bolsters this conjecture he may have had multiple personalities. And different people who have examined him have diagnosed him with various other kinds of psychosis. Well, then he graduates from college. He joins Governor Daniel Evans' re-election campaign, and he actually gets appointed to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. So, I mean, this is just blowing my mind here, honestly, that here's a person who's criming like the worst of crimes in his spare time, and then he's on this crime prevention task force, and then he goes to law school. So, this is about where things start spiraling for him and led us to how he eventually gets caught. As I mentioned earlier, Bundy had already started murdering people at this point. In fact, his very first murder may have been committed when he was only 14 years old. Mm -hmm. So there's some circumstantial evidence that he may have abducted and killed an eight-year-old by the name of Anne-Marie Burr of Tacoma, Washington. He, now, he told one biographer he attempted his first kidnapping in 1969, but didn't actually murder anyone until 1971. We're pretty sure that's just not true. And then he mentioned and you know, turned around and told a psychiatrist that he killed two women in Atlantic City in 1969 while visiting family in Philly. What to believe? Because he never tells the truth, right? Or right. rarely does. What we do know is that his earliest documented homicides were committed in 1974 when he was 27 years old. And he had mastered this necessary skills to leave minimal incriminating forensic evidence at crime scenes. So again, he's working as the Seattle Crime Prevention on the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission, where he wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. Then he worked Ugh. at the uh, Department of Emergency Services, a state government agency involved in the search for all the missing women. At DES, he met and dated Carol Ann Boone, a twice-divorced mother of two who six years later would play a very important role in the final phase of his life. He was an unusually organized and calculating criminal who used his extensive knowledge of law enforcement methodology to elude identification and capture, obviously for years. His crime scenes were distributed over large geographic areas. His victim count had arisen to at least 20 before it came, became clear that it, in these different jurisdictions that were happening, that they were all hunting the same person. His assault methods of choice were blunt trauma and strangulation, two relatively quiet techniques that could be accomplished with common household items. He avoided firearms because of the noise they made. And he was a meticulous researcher who explored his surroundings, looking for safe sites to seize and dispose of victims. Speaking of which, they never found his fingerprints at any crime scene. So this is something that he repeated a lot, pointing out that he, there's no way he killed all these women. My fingerprints aren't even on there. Mm -hmm. One thing that I thought was really wild, though, is that one of the things they kept bringing up as the reason they had a hard time 
figuring out who this was, is that he had sort of anonymous physical characteristics and features. And he had this weird chameleon-like ability to change his appearance almost at will. Early on, police complained of the futility of showing his photograph to witnesses because he looked different in virtually every photo ever taken of him. And, you know, someone said it was a judge in the Durange trial. He really was a changeling. Bundy was well aware of this unusual quality and he exploited it using subtle modifications of facial hair or hairstyle to significantly alter his appearance as necessary. He concealed his one distinctive identifying mark, which was a mole on his neck with all those turtleneck shirts and sweaters. Mm -hmm. And so, and get this, even his Volkswagen Beetle proved difficult to pin down because its color was variously described as metallic, non-metallic, tan or bronze, light brown or dark brown. <laughs> so, well, and they um, were very just, popular then. Absolutely. And he just seemed to have this ability to both blend in and stand out when he wanted to. I was thinking about kind of getting into how he killed the victims. And I thought, you know, that just gets a little crazy. But one of the things that, you know, he was known for strangle strangulating some of the women, in some cases beheaded them. Um, but he often would remove the clothing, burn it, um, and do something that made it, and do things that made it difficult to not only trace who did the crime, but who the person would have been. So I decided to just make a list of the women and dates that he murdered. Kick back. It's a lengthy list. <laughs> oh, yeah. So in 1974, January 4th, Karen Sparks, age 18, was bludgeoned and sexually assaulted in her bed as she slept, but she survived. February 1st, Linda Ann Healy, age 21, bludgeoned while asleep and abducted. Skull and mandible recovered at the Taylor Mountain site. March 12th, Donna Gail Manson, age 19, abducted while walking to a concert at the Evergreen State College, body left, according to Bundy, but it was never found, at the Taylor Mountain site. April 17th, Suzanne Elaine Rancourt, age 18, disappeared after attending an evening advisors meeting at Central Washington State College. Skull and mandible recovered at Taylor Mountain site in 1975. Um, one thing that is actually very well known about Ted was that after he killed his victims, he would often come back and visit the bodies and do terrible things to them and until they were past the point of, you know, being, you know, when they got, I hate to use the word putrefied, but, you know, right. when they were far past looking like people. Roberta Kathleen Parks, age 22, vanished from Oregon State University in Corvallis, skull and mandible recovered at Taylor Mountain site in 1975. June 1st, Brenda Carol Ball, age 22, disappeared after leaving the Flame Tavern in Burien, skull and mandible recovered at Taylor Mountain site in 1975. June 11th, Georgianne Hawkins, who's age 18, abducted from an alley behind her sorority house. Skeletal remains identified by Bundy as those of Hawkins recovered at the Isequa site. July 14th, Janice Ann Ott, 23, abducted from Lake Squamish State Park in broad daylight. Skeletal remains recovered at the Issaquah site in 1975. July 14, Denise Marie Nasland, age 19, abducted four hours after Ott from the same park. Skeletal remains recovered at Issaquah site in 1975. So we're in by the way, as you know, 1974 mm -hmm. at this point, and that's just Washington and Oregon. So we're going to move to other states, yes. Utah, Colorado, and Idaho. October 2nd, 
Nancy Wilcox, age 16, ambushed, assaulted, and strangled in Holiday, Utah. Body buried, according to Bundy, near Capitol Reef National Park, 200 miles south of Salt Lake City, but never found. October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, age 17, vanished from Midvale, Utah. Body found nine days later in nearby mountainous areas. October 31st, Laura Ann Aim, age 17, disappeared from Lehigh, Utah, bludgeoned and raped, body discovered by hikers in American Fork Canyon. November 8th, Carol DeRanche, age 18, attempted abduction in Murray, Utah, escaped from Bundy's car and survived. Wow. November 8th again, Deborah Jean Kent, age 17, vanished after leaving a school play in Bountiful, Utah. Body left, according to Bundy, near Fairview, Utah, 100 miles south of Bountiful. Minimal skeletal remains, one patella was found. Um, and eventually in 2015 was positively identified by DNA as Kent's. That's 1974. Let's move to 1975. Utah, Colorado, and Idaho. In 1975, January 12th, Karen Eileen Campbell, age 23, disappeared from a hotel hallway in Snowmass, Colorado, body discovered 36 days later on a dirt road near the hotel. March 15th, Julie Cunningham, age 26, disappeared on the way to a tavern in Vail, Colorado, body buried, according to Bundy, near Rifle, 90 miles west of Vail, but never found. April 6th, Denise Lynn Oliverson, age 25, Abducted while cycling to her parents' house in Grand Junction, Colorado. Body thrown, according to Bundy, into the Colorado River five miles west of Grand Junction, but never found. Hmm. May 6th, Lynette Don Culver, age 12. Abducted from Alameda Junior High School in Pocatello, Idaho. Body thrown, according to Bundy, into what authorities believe to be the Snake River, but never found. Finally, June 28th, Susan Curtis, age 15. Disappeared during a youth conference at Brigham Young University. Body buried, according to Bundy, near Price, Utah, 75 miles southeast of Provo, but never found. So all of these women who have astonishingly similar characteristics, Mm -hmm. long brown straight hair parted down the middle, and above average pretty. So during this time, various law enforcement agencies are trying to solve this crazy murder spree that had begun very suddenly and then ended very suddenly. As a result, they developed the first ever computer database used to solve crimes, and Bundy's name just kept popping up every time they cross-checked various evidence, such as owners of VW Bugs named Ted. (laughs) In November, Elizabeth Klopfer, a girlfriend of Bundy's, called King County Police a second time after reading that young women were disappearing in towns surrounding Salt Lake City. Detective Randy Hergsheimer of the Major Crimes Division interviewed her in detail. By then, Bundy had risen considerably on the King County hierarchy of suspicion, but the Lake Squamish witnesses, considered most reliable by detectives, failed to identify him from a photo lineup. We're mad because he looks different every time you look at him. In December, Klopfer called the Salt Lake City Sheriff's Department, I'm sorry, Salt Lake County Sheriff's Department, Mm -hmm. and repeated her suspicions. Bundy's name was added to their list of suspects, but at that time, no credible forensic evidence linked him to the Utah crimes. In January 1975, Bundy returned to Seattle after his final exams, spent a week with Klopfer, who did not tell him she had already reported him to the police on three occasions. Yeah. And she made plans to visit him in Salt Lake City in August. So can we take a moment and go, what the hell? 
I mean, if you thought your boyfriend was like a serial murderer, would you spend time with him? Would you continue to visit him? I mean, whether it's I, right I or think not. I would, but at the same time, maybe she thought, well, they didn't arrest him. So maybe he wasn't guilty. Yeah. Maybe so, she just thought she was overreacting. Yeah. You know, oh, he fits the profile, what they're saying, but it must be a different Ted. It must be somebody else and not my boyfriend mm -hmm. because they're not arresting him. Yeah. I, yeah. I can see women doing that to justify because I don't get the impression he was violent with his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't get that impression either. Mm -hmm. And apparently that movie, um, the Green River Killer. The Riverman? Yes. Um, I think that was based on her recollections of the situation. Anyway, on August 16th, 1975, we get some good news. Bundy <laughs> gets arrested by the Utah Highway Patrol after Officer Bob Hayward in Granger um, observed Bundy cruising residential area in the pre-dawn hours. He then fled at high speed after seeing the patrol car. So, of course, the officer gives chase. The officer searched the car after he noticed the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the rear seats. He found a ski mask, a second mask fashioned from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and other items initially assumed to be burglary tools. So then he tried to explain too. it away, but you know, the, the detective was like, yeah, I don't think so, dude. And so he, cause uh, one of the detectives kind of remembered a similar suspect in car description from the Durant kidnapping, which matched Bundy's name from Clover's December 1974 phone call. So in November, the three principal Bundy investigators met in Aspen, Colorado. They exchanged information from like 30 detectives and prosecutors from five states, and they called this the Aspen Summit. So they were convinced that Bundy was the murderer that they sought, but they knew that they needed more hard evidence before he could be charged with anything. But in February 1976, Bundy did stand trial for the Durant kidnapping. And on the advice of his attorney, John O'Connell, that just caught me. I know a John O'Connell, but not that one. Um, Bundy raved, waived his right to a jury due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. After a four-day bench trial and a weekend of deliberation, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found him guilty of kidnapping and assault and was sentenced to one to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. In October, he was found hiding in the bushes of the prison yard carrying an escape kit and spent several weeks in solitary confinement. Later that month, Colorado authorities charged him with Karen Campbell's murder. After a period of resistance, he waived extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen in January 1977. This is important to know because, you know, as you know, he's acting as an, his own attorney. So mm -hmm. then on June 7th, 1977, Bundy escaped from custody while being transferred for a hearing and remained a fugitive for six days. He hatched another escape plan and implemented it on December 30th, 1977. He'd sawed a hole in the ceiling of his cell. By the time he was discovered missing, he was already in Chicago, Illinois. For the next two weeks, Bundy was on the run, eventually ending up in Tallahassee, Florida. And guess what he did there in Tallahassee, Florida? Oh, I don't know. He murdered more people. Oh, he did? It's his thing. It's his hobby. No, I, it's I what he does. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> It was for I our listeners. It wasn't coming out clear. <laughs> January 15th, Margaret Elizabeth Bowman, age 21, bludgeoned, then strangled as she slept in the Chi Omega sorority. January 15th, Lisa Levy, 20, bludgeoned, strangled, and sexually assaulted as she slept, Chi Omega sorority. January 15th, again, 
Karen Chandler, 21, bludgeoned as she slept in Chi Omega sorority. She survived. Again, Kathy Kleiner, age 21, also bludgeoned as she slept in the Chi Omega sorority, survived. Cheryl Thomas, age 21, bludgeoned as she slept eight blocks from Chi Omega and survived. So as you can tell from that little litany, he obviously, he broke into the sorority house and assaulted women as they slept, Mm -hmm. then ran down a few blocks and did it again to someone else. And then of course, February 9th, Kimberly Diane Leach, age 12. Abducted from her junior high school in Lake City, Florida, mummified remains found near Suwannee River State Park, 43 miles west of Lake City. So then on February 12th, about three days later, he didn't have money to pay his rent. He felt that the police were closing in on him. So he stole a car and started driving west across the panhandle. He was stopped about three days later. He was stopped by Pensacola police officer David Lee near the Alabama state line after a wants and warrants checked showed his Volkswagen Beetle was stolen. When told he was under arrest, this is very dramatic, Bundy kicked Lee's legs out from under him and took off running. Lee fired a warning shot, followed by a second round, gave chase and tackled him. The two struggled over Lee's gun before the officer finally subdued and arrested Bundy. In the stolen vehicle were three sets of IDs belonging to female FSU students, 21 stolen credit cards, and a stolen television set. As Lee transported his suspect to jail, unaware that he had just arrested one of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives, he heard Bundy say, I wish you had killed me. So there was a change of venue to Miami where Bundy stood trial for the Chi Omega homicides and assaults in June 1979. The trial was covered by 250 reporters from five continents and was the first to be televised nationally in the United States. Despite the presence of five court-appointed attorneys, Bundy again handled much of his own defense. From the beginning, he, quote-unquote, sabotaged the entire defense effort out of spite, distrust, and grandiose delusion, one of his attorneys later wrote. Ted was facing murder charges with a possible death sentence, and all that mattered to him, apparently, was that he be in charge. So, the jury did their job. The jury deliberated for less than seven hours before convicting him on July 24, 1979, of the Bowman and Levy murders, three counts of attempted first-degree murder, and two counts of burglary, and he received the death sentence for that. Then, of course, the trials aren't over, so they did another trial in Orlando for the abduction and murder of Kimberly Leach, again found guilty after less than eight hours' deliberation. During the penalty phase of the trial, Bundy took advantage of this obscure Florida law providing that a marriage declaration in court in the presence of a judge constituted a legal marriage. So as he's questioning former Washington State DES worker Carol Ann Boone, who had moved to Florida to be near Bundy, had testified on his behalf during both trials and was again testifying on his behalf as a character witness, he asked her to marry him. Mm -hmm. She accepted, and Bundy declared to the court that they were legally married, and they were crazy. (laughs) Like, my my head exploded when I saw that. (laughs) I'm like, dear God, woman, what the hell? Okay, so on February 10th, 1980, Bundy was sentenced for a third time to death by electrocution. So he gets to die several times. Right. As the sentence was announced, he reportedly stood and shouted, tell the jury they were wrong. The third death sentence would be the one ultimately carried out nearly nine years later. So here's some fun stuff. In October 1981, Boone gave birth to a daughter and named Bundy as the father. 
So conjugal visits weren't actually allowed at Rayford Prison, but they figure he probably bribed a guard to allow them some time alone with their female yes. visitors. Um, in July 1984, Rayford guards found two hacksaw blades that Bundy had hidden in his cell. A steel bar in one of the cell's windows had been sawed completely through at the top and bottom and glued back into place with homemade soap-based adhesive. Several months later, guards found an unauthorized mirror hidden in the cell, and Bundy was again moved to a different cell. So he never gave up hope that he would be able to oh, no. escape this fate. Shortly thereafter, he was charged with a disciplinary infraction for unauthorized correspondence with another high-profile criminal, John Hinckley Jr., the guy who tried to assassinate mm -hmm. Reagan. So now Boone, his wife, Bundy's wife, had championed Bundy's innocence throughout all of his trials. And right before he was due to be executed, he actually admitted and confessed to, to the murders. And she felt deeply betrayed by his admission that he was, in fact, guilty. So she moved back to Washington with her daughter and refused to accept his phone call in the morning of his execution. I think that's the one bright thing she did in all of this, you know? He was so, a good liar. She, could, she believed yeah, him. And, she believed him. And she wanted to believe him. And that, I was going to say that. If you want to believe it. Mm -hmm. Just have a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Bundy died in the Rayford electric chair at 7.16 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on January 24th, 1989. Hundreds of revelers sang, danced, and set off fireworks in a pasture across from the prison as the execution was carried out and then cheered as the white hearse containing Bundy's corpse departed the prison. He was cremated in Gainesville and his ashes scattered at an undisclosed location in the Cascade Range of Washington State in accordance to his will, which I think was decent of them to actually follow his will and not just like, you know, oh, this Some ended up in the spray. ocean because it's, you know, yeah. it's close by. Rule and Ainsworth both noted that for Bundy, the fault always lay with someone or something else. While he eventually confessed to the 30 murders, he never accepted responsibility for any of them, even when offered that opportunity prior to the Chi Omega trial, which would have spared him the death penalty. On at least one occasion, he even tried to blame his victims. I have known people who radiate vulnerability, he wrote in a 1977 letter to Klopfer. Their facial expressions say, I am afraid of you. These people invite abuse. By expecting oh, to be hurt, do they subtly encourage it? And this guy was a freaking psychopath. Mm -hmm. I mean, we knew that, but it just shows the depth of his yeah, psychopathy. Probably. A significant element of delusion also permeated his thinking. Bundy was always surprised when anyone noticed that one of his victims was missing because he imagined America to be a place where everyone is invisible except to themselves. And he was always astounded when people testified they had seen him in incriminating places because Bundy didn't believe people noticed each other. So it's probable that Bundy murdered quite a few other women he never confessed to. But in, in 2011, his entire DNA profile was added to the FBI's DNA database for, for future reference in unsolved murder cases. And that is the summation of the story of Ted Bundy. It, he's, he's something else. A couple things, I, I'm like taking notes as you're going because <laughs> I can't help myself because, you know, I remember when he was, um, oh, geez, <laughs> put to death on in the electric chair because people in my high school were celebrating even. Wow. You know, I was like, oh, did you hear Ted Bundy died? Yay. You know, and I'm just like, whoa. Yeah. It was that national and that level of conversation he brought about. 
And I think it was because it was televised. A lot of the trial, people saw it. It was one of the first things. People didn't really know about serial killers. They were happening. The police knew about them, but he really brought it to the forefront. Mm-hmm. And Well, and I think too, with his selection of victims, mm-hmm. you know, these were easily identifiable as people's daughters, you know, right. people's sisters. These, you know, it just struck home in a way that, you know, a, you know, a Hollywood sort of mysterious death such as the Black Dahlia wouldn't necessarily have hit home. But mm-hmm. something like this, this hits home. Yes. I mean, it affected so many and so many across the country. It wasn't limited to the one state. Like you'll see, you see with like the Green River Killer or even BTK so much. It's several states. And then he, on the ultimate spree as he's escaping, he can't stop his murderous impulses and he finds himself at the Kyle sorority house. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is I listened to some other podcasts and there's one that I listened to called Reverie True Crime. And if anybody's interested, this is, <laughs> she didn't even ask me to do this, but if anybody's interested, she has a recent episode where she has an interview with survivor Kathy Kleiner. And it's, wow. yeah, it's, it's a really good interview. Very interesting. Kathy Kleiner is amazing. So it gives you a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, more from the victim's perspective on that one. One thing you didn't mention, which I thought was funny, is he started confessing the crimes as a way he was hoping it would delay his death sentence being carried out. Yeah. And he kept saying, well, I'll tell you more, but you just have to to delay it. You know, he was doing everything he could to survive. So he was a murderer, but he was also a survivor in so many ways. And I'm sure he was just trying to buy time so he could escape, you know, because constantly trying to escape. Um, but again, you know, as you, as we talked about before, he just lied so often and he was even lying about those things. He was giving the wrong directions. You know, he said, oh, there's a body hidden here. They wouldn't find anything. And eventually, so one of the things I I didn't mention that did catch my eye was that they tried to get a stay of execution or a pardon from the governor of Florida and, you know, basically on, you know, some technical technicalities with the trial and things like that and the go- the governor was like yeah no I want no part of this and he's like I'm not even going to entertain it because it's just another delaying mechanism yep well I went into his tree and it is it's a very fascinating tree now like some other trees where there's a lot of different murder and violence especially that last one we did with Lynn Edward Rogers mm-hmm. this isn't filled with that but it's okay. fascinating nonetheless I mean there's so much information mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'll get that started now. Um, Ted was born on November 24th, 1946 to Eleanor Louise Cowell at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. His mother was 22 and on the birth certificate, she listed the father as Lloyd Marshall. And this is according to Ann Will in her book, The Stranger Beside Me. And according to that book, she also mentioned that Lloyd Marshall had apparently been born in 1916 and was an Army Air Corps veteran from World War II. Now, I tried to find Lloyd Marshall because that's what I do, but I was unable to find anybody who fit that. Now, while it's possible, every Lloyd Marshall I could find who was born around that time was married and nowhere near Philadelphia, where Eleanor was living. It could be it was a made-up name. It could be somebody was visiting. And I mentioned to you the other day that I discovered that the name Lloyd Marshall had been in the news a lot at the time 
because there was a boxer by the name of Lloyd Marshall who was making a lot of news. Oh, yeah. So sometimes you have to wonder, did she just pull the name out, make up a story? Who knows? Later, though, she would say the father was a veteran by the name of Jack Worthington. To this day, though, his paternity is unknown, though some family members and experts have speculated that Ted's grandfather, Samuel Cal, was his father. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So Ted was not born Ted Bundy. He was born Theodore Robert Cowell. And he did not become a Bundy until after Louise, his mother, married Johnny Culpepper Bundy in May 1951. And at that time, Johnny adopted Ted. Even more interesting is that Ted Bundy, when he was first, his mom gave birth, she went home and left him at the home for unwed mothers for the first three days. Oh, she was not necessarily interested in being a mother at that time, especially not unwed mother. This is in the mid forties. It wasn't as accepted as it is now. So nobody knows what changed her mind, if it was her parents or not, but they went and retrieved him and brought him to Philadelphia where they lived. Okay. Because single mothers were looked down upon, the family passed off Ted as the son of his grandparents, Samuel Next Cowell and Eleanor Miriam Longstreet. Mm. In fact, it's not even clear when Ted became aware that Louise was not his sister, but rather his mother. Interesting. He has claimed he found the birth certificate as a young child. He's also told a girlfriend once that his cousins showed him the birth certificate and called him a bastard. Hmm. Ann Rule, who knew Bundy, believed he didn't actually know until 1969 when he got his birth record, which you had mentioned that you know, he had gone and got his birth record in Vermont. But I find that a little doubtful only for the reason that the birth certificate may have been altered because I did find his birth certificate. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting about the birth certificate I found is it wasn't the one that was issued to him on his birth. Really? I don't know why, but this is one that was issued in 1980. And it lists his father on there as Johnny Culpepper Bundy. That's really interesting. Then they even have a note of his death date on it in like pencil. Interesting. So I will share that on the website so people can see. Because I'm like, why would he get a birth record so late? Why would it have been so altered? I bet it had something to do with getting married. Because he got married in 1980. Yeah, that could be. That in order to have the records done mm -hmm. in the... And the certificate signed that right. he needed a birth certificate. Right. How curious. Now, I have so many questions on this because regardless of when he found out who that his Louise was his mother, she mm -hmm. did take him and moved to Tacoma, Washington around 1950, okay. where they lived with her uncle Jack, a music professor and composer. His formal name was John Roland Cowell. Now, I my confusion is why would he think he's going to move with his sister there and not stay with the grandparents because his grandparents lived for a bit longer. His grandfather didn't die until 1983 and his grandmother didn't die until 1971. Oh my God. Wait a second. His grandfather lived long enough to see him end up in prison. Yes. Oh, how heartbreaking. Yes. But you never heard any news about this. Wow. Now I found a wonderful article from May 1989 in Vanity Fair magazine called The Roots of Evil. And it gets really detailed into his childhood. And it was written by Myra McPherson. And I'm going to read a little part of it 
but there were signs of severely disturbing behavior in Sam Cowell, Bundy's grandfather and the oldest of seven children. By all accounts, Grandfather Cowell was an extremely violent and frightening individual, and that was testified at one court hearing. Mm. He would kick dogs until they howled and swing cats by the tail if the animals got near them. And according to Louise's youngest sister, he would get so mad that he would jump up and down and rage at the men who worked for him. His temper tantrums were so violent that um, Ted's Aunt Julia did not look forward to her father coming home. Mm-hmm. And that at one point, he was so angry at her sleeping until nine, her father once yanked her out of bed so hard that she stumbled down a three-step landing. Oh, wow. But he's described more as a verbal tyrant than a physical one. There, there was probably some at least level of abuse. But when you look at what Ted's description of his grandfather, it was, oh, he was so loving and wonderful to me. Wow. So it feels like there's a disconnect or maybe he was to him. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But I have more to share on some of this from the same source. So we'll discuss Eleanor. Um, Eleanor Louise Cowell was born in 1924. She was one of three girls, actually the oldest of three girls to Samuel and Eleanor Cowell. They were all born in Philadelphia. And Eleanor Louise went by Louise. And as I go through, you're going to notice some naming patterns. So this is the first Eleanor. Let's just put it that way. Okay. (laughs) And the first Louise. Her oldest sister, her next sister was Audrey Hope. And she was born in 1928. And the youngest sister was Julia was born in around 1935. According to Julia, Louise was secretive and not demonstrative at all. She also possessed an explosive temper, much like her father and was also described as being a prude who lived to follow the lead of their father. Hmm, that's interesting. Especially given that she was an unwed mother. Mm-hmm. Julia also shared a story about Ted as a toddler, saying that once she found him placing knives near her as she slept. Oh my God. Yeah, a toddler. Wow. So many questions about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Their parents were Samuel Cowell was born in 1898 in Chicago, Illinois, to William Foote Cowell and Julia Florence Necht. That's K-N-E-C-H-T. The family did not stay in Illinois very long, moving to Woodbury, New Jersey by 1910. Samuel held a variety of jobs, starting at least by the age of 17. In the 1915 New Jersey census, Samuel lived with his family, working as a railroad clerk. Then, in 1918, after the family moved to Philadelphia, he enlisted in the U.S. Army, serving only three months during World War I. In 1920, still living with his parents, so he would be 22, so it's not unheard of, Samuel worked as an apprentice optician, an occupation he likely didn't hold for very long. And I'll say this, his father was an optician, so that's probably why he apprenticed in it. Oh, okay, that makes sense. And we'll get more into that later, but Samuel married Eleanor Miriam Longstreet sometime in 1923 in Philadelphia. By 1930, Samuel and Eleanor had two daughters, and he was working at this time as a salesman. He was no longer an optician. It wasn't until 1940, after his parents died, that Samuel no longer lived with them. Hmm. Yeah. The 1940 census indicated another career shift, this time to Gardner. Oh. Yeah. What I found interesting is according to the World War II draft card he filled out in 1942, he worked for Pilgrim Laundry. I can't help but wonder if that might be part of the war efforts at the time. But by 1946, Samuel was actively working as a landscape gardener and was even giving many community talks on plants and gardening. And you can find that in the Philadelphia paper where they would be announcing his next talk. During the trials of Bundy, it came out that Samuel was violent and scary, like I had mentioned before. And according to a sister, Virginia, 
Sam's brothers were even afraid of him. Oh. And family members have said he was a racist who hated black people, Italians, and Catholics. Woohoo! Gosh, so an, I, I checked the mark on at least one of those. Yeah, if you were an Italian Catholic, well, what good were you? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, Samuel, just like Louise, was the oldest. There were four boys, three girls, to William and Julia. From all appearances and evidence, it was a home centered around education and music. It was a very cultured, well-off family. Some notable mentions are his brother, Lawrence William, who was born in 1906. He attended Penn, University of Pennsylvania, graduating in 1930. He was also an amateur wrestler who won the AAU Freestyle Championships, weighing in at 147 and a half pounds in 1944. Now, I had to look this up because I know nothing about wrestling. <laughs> and apparently, if you qualified and you won your championship and freestyle um, at the championships for AAU, you would you might go on to the Olympics if it was an Olympic year. Oh, wow. Well, 1944 was an Olympic year, except World War II was going on. Mm -hmm. So had it not been for the war, Lawrence could have been an Olympian. Wow. Mm -hmm. He went on to run a very successful business. He married a woman by the name of Ruth Openshaw, and they had two children, one who attended Brown University and the other who attended Pembroke College. Hmm. Ruth, Lawrence's wife, came up in a newspaper often where they lived in New Jersey. And I, I find this fascinating just because we know who Ted was and how he was definitely mentally, there was issues. He's actually been um, diagnosed remotely as antisocial personality disorder, which is hard to recognize because they're very good actors. They can compartmentalize very easily. They act to show emotion because they don't really feel emotion like the rest of us do. Well, I find this interesting because his aunt, Ruth, basically, was a psychiatric social worker. Ah, that's I would have, interesting. I would, and she was alive when he was caught and everything was going on. I would have loved to have known her thoughts on her nephew. She was active in the community advocating for schools and vaccines. And not only was her work published in academic journals, but she helped establish a comprehensive mental health clinic and served as its executive director from 1966 to 1981. And she was very upset with President Ronald Reagan when he took away funding for mental health. Yes. Because she's like, this is going to put everybody on the street. It's not a good thing in the way he's thinking it will be. Which, yeah, and then that's exactly what happened. Exactly. She was right. After she retired and her husband died, she took up sculpting. Huh. At the age of 80, she started entering shows and sold her work, including watercolors and wax figures. Huh. And... In a town in Massachusetts at one time, there is the Ruth Openshaw Cowell Sculpture Garden. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. The youngest of Samuel's siblings was John Rowland, and I mentioned him earlier. This is Uncle Jack, who Louise and Ted went to live with in Tacoma. He was only four years Louise's senior, so they were closer, more like siblings in age. And so I imagine that they were close. Because he did grow up in Philadelphia, just like all his siblings, before he went off to Tacoma. So I found a brief autobiography of John, otherwise known as Uncle Jack. And I'll read part of it for you in a minute. But John started studying music at three and a half years of age, learning how to play the piano. At first, taught by his mother. Then at 13, he started learning how to play the organ with more professional training at that time. It turns out that John was a bit of a musical prodigy. He studied at the Philadelphia Conservatory of Music, and then later on, 
after World War II, he went to Yale. When he finished his time, though, at the conservatory, it was 1942, World War II. Mm -hmm. And from his autobiography, he writes, In June 1942, I graduated cum laude with a bachelor of music degree in piano and composition. But at the same time, I received my induction notice into the Army in World War II. I was granted an appearance before my draft board with evidence in hand of my acceptance with scholarship to study under Aaron Copland at the Berkshire Music Festival of the Boston Symphony, called popularly by its location, Tanglewood. I went with a Philadelphia contingent of Romeo Tascarino as a scholarship composition student and Mario Lanza as a promising singer. Mm. Most of all, I treasured the close association with Aaron Copland that summer, as well as Leonard Bernstein, whom I had gotten to know well in Philadelphia while Bernstein was staying conducting at the Curtis Institute, three blocks from my conservatory. Wow. And That's I know. so cool. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> so he served his time in World War II and then after married. want to add that before World War II started, his parents had both died and he was spending a lot of time with another family and he even had a professor down on his World War II draft card as the contact person. Wow. One of his siblings who lived in the area, but his professor. And the woman he ended up marrying was a family he had gotten to know at the time. And she actually went and she served also in the Navy. Oh, good on her. Yes. And she, she was, she joined on her own. I mean, she obviously wasn't drafted because women still aren't getting drafted as far as I know. Anyhow, um, he and his wife had two children. John worked as a composer as well as a professor of music. He started being a professor in Tacoma on the, at the, on the faculty of the College of Puget Sound, which didn't she say that Ted attended the College of Puget Sound? Uh-huh. Well, it was University of Puget Sound at that point. Oh, okay. Yes, same thing. Yeah, and my guess is um, his uncle's connections didn't hurt. Mm -hmm. Although He was a legacy. Yes. Um, he retired in 1985 at the University of Arkansas. Now, I did find something interesting that in May 1976 he was directing a performance of the North Arkansas Symphony of his concerto concerto in one movement as well as performed as piano soloist for two of his other compositions he performed this at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in DC oh my goodness yes I would like to know what his thoughts were about his serial killer nephew I would love to know that as well and he he died in recent years so he was alive for a long time. Like, were, were, did they ever sit around as a family and go, okay, if one of us were a serial killer, it'd probably be Ted, you know? You would wonder. Yeah. Um, and you didn't get too much into his childhood, but, you know, he didn't know who he was. He's adopted. There's all sorts of stuff going on. And I didn't get to this, and I do want to mention it. Louise, his mother, always believed Ted was innocent. She defended him from the moment he was first accused. Mm -hmm. However, when he started to confess, she, like Carol Boone, was shocked. Wow. And she finally acknowledged that he did the crimes. Oh my gosh. But she did, she, she stayed, she still loved her son and would wow. be there for him. You know, that's what moms do, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, I can understand not wanting to admit to yourself even that your own child was capable of these kinds of atrocities. Yes. Um, but man, I just can't even imagine. Because, you know, it seems like the rest of the family was pretty normal. You know, they had some bumps along the road, but there's nothing that just kind of like stands out as, 
you know, something be just beyond the pale of right. normal human behavior. And they were intelligent and talented. And I'm not even done. We gained even more, but oh my gosh. And Louise just died in 2012. So she's only recently, I say recent, I mean, it's eight years, but still it's more recently than he did. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now we're going to go on to Samuel's father, William Foot Cowell, who also was an oldest child. He was born on the 15th of January, 1871 in Brooklyn, New York. By 1876, though, the family had moved to New Jersey where his sister Alice was born. They soon moved again, this time settling in Detroit, where William spent most of his childhood. William left Michigan to go to Northern Illinois College of Ophthalmology and Autology, where he graduated in 1896, and he became an optician. Wow. While he was in school, he met his wife, Julia Florence Necht. She was um, a local of Deerfield, Illinois, which is a suburb in Lake County. They also have Chicago. a really good bakery there. Oh, <laughs> I'll have to try that sometime. And they married in 1897. In 1900, they lived in Chicago. I believe they were living with his parent, her parents at the time, but they were also with their son, Samuel. They moved a few years later, first to Ypsilanti, Michigan in 1906. That's where his mother was at the time. And then to Virginia, where they had their daughter, aptly named Virginia, in 1908. Oh, that's lovely. I have a quick question, though. Given those dates, they would have been in Chicago around the time of the World's Fair, right? 1893 was the World's Fair. Yeah, um, I would think he would have been there for sure. I know she would have because that's where her family was. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So the, the reason is like, you know, H.H. H. Holmes, right. other serial killer. I'm just, there's so many ways things get tied in. Crazy. Um, after they, but they weren't for Virginia for very long because the next time I find them somewhere else, they're in, because I couldn't find them in the 1910 census to save my life, but they were in Glassboro, New Jersey by 1914. Hmm. And they finally settled in Philadelphia in 1920. So this is a family that moved a lot. Hmm. And at every stop, he was working as an optician. Doesn't that seem strange? It does to me. A person who's an optician moving around, mm -hmm. you know, because especially if they were, you know, first in Chicago and then they're shifting around to other cities. I mean, there's a lot of people that need glasses. So that's especially very odd. Then. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you've got your whole inventory with you. Mm -hmm. So why would you want to shift that around? That's now, interesting. It could be he was an ophthalmologist and not an optician. It's hard to know because the census will say optician and the next one will say ophthalmologist. And it goes back and forth. So I lean on the optician side because I saw that most frequently. Mm -hmm. Who knows? I mean, I could see him moving to Michigan to be near his mother because he was only in Chicago to go to school. Okay. I don't that's think fair. that was his long-term goal. Then his mother left Michigan. But I have no idea why they would go to Virginia. Mm -hmm. And then, That's so or crazy. why, why they go to New Jersey. Now where they went in New Jersey was not that far from Philadelphia. Glassboro, New Jersey is, a, I believe it's south of Camden, which is right across okay. the river from Philadelphia. Okay. I can picture that. Mm -hmm. William died in 1938 at the age of 67 and his wife, Julia died in 1940 at the age of 65. Now William's parents were English immigrants. Edward Roland Espinet or Espinet Cowell was his father. And he was known most often as Roland, although later in later years, he would be known by more frequently as Edward. And they had, 
what is this note I left myself? Oh, oh. and Edward S. Roland Espinette Cal was also an only child, uh, oldest child. Ah, so Louise was an oldest, Samuel's an oldest, then William's an oldest, and now we have Edward, also an oldest, which I found interesting. That is curious. And and Ted was the oldest child yes. of his mother's. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. So if you have too many eldest children in a line, <laughs> you might get something bunny. you don't anticipate. <laughs> well, you always have an oldest children in a line. It's just it's so random to find when you're doing a tree like this. Mm -hmm. um, Edward was born in Tinterden, Kent in England to George Richard Cowell and Aditha Lampert Espinet in the win late winter of 1845. I don't know what the exact month is. There's a um, England's birth index that indicated January, February, or March. <laughs> For reasons unknown, and I, the family left England on the ship John, arriving in New York City on the 3rd of May, 1852. And the only thing I could come up with is maybe he thought there was a great deal of opportunity in the United States at the time. Because at home, as far as I could tell with his own family, there were no struggles going on there. The family then settled in Cleveland, Ohio, where Edward or Roland grew up. Sadly, his mother died two years later at the age of 35. Oh, that's sad. By the mid-1860s, Edward removed himself to Brooklyn, where he likely met and married Annie Sester of New York. Now, Annie Sester is a hard one to find. At times, really? yeah, the last name looks like Lester, and I thought maybe that was it. But on death certificates of her children, most of them put Sester, so I have to go with that. But I cannot find her even in New York with her own family. Interesting. So there's something out there somewhere. I just haven't found it yet. <laughs> Don't know that I will because I have to work on the next tree after this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they stayed in Brooklyn for a couple of years. They had one child by the name of George, and I, I guess I incorrectly stated that William was the firstborn. Technically, I think he was the secondborn, but um, his older sibling, George, passed away very young. Oh, that's sad. But they, were, they stayed in Brooklyn for a couple of years, then moved to Detroit sometime between 1876 and 1879. Okay. The family remained in Detroit, where Edward worked as a bookkeeper for a time. Okay, I also found a few articles in the Detroit Free Press where he was listed as getting patents and I think it's possible he was working for the railroad oh wow because for example one of his patents was in July 1888 and he was granted a patent for inventing a railway crossing and switch signal and in 1891 he was given half credit for inventing a time chart and time globe oh wow um, Edward and Annie had nine children but only four made it to adulthood oh that's sad William Harriet Alice and Laura then things went a little south Ooh. for the couple. And I have a few articles popped up in the Detroit Free Press. The first one was September 15, 1896. Edward R. E. Cowell and Lizzie A. Skinner, the couple arrested at Eaton Rabbits, Rapids Saturday, pleaded not guilty to a charge of adultery. Wow. Mm -hmm. Four days later, the examination of Edward R. E. Cowell and Lizzie Skinner on the charge of adultery was continued to September 25th. A charge of unlawful cohabitation has been made against the two, and the former charge will likely be dropped owing to the difficulty of proving Cowell's marriage. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. And then on September 26, 1896, the case against Cowell and Mrs. Skinner dropped. Yes, she was married. Oh, my. Um, Scandalous. And, yes. And the article goes on to say, in the police court yesterday, the defendants, Edward R. E. Cowell and Lizzie A. Skinner, charged with adultery and also with lewd cohabitation, were discharged at the request of the prosecuting attorney and of the complainant's attorney owing to the difficulty of securing evidence to establish Cowell's marriage. The couple were arrested at Eaton Rapids some time ago and brought here at the insistence of Cowell's wife, who lives in Ypsilanti. Wow. How do they not prove that they're married when they have children together, they've been living together? Because back then, paperwork for marriage and stuff was scarce. Mm-hmm. And when they would have gotten married in New York, because I tried to find their marriage record, mm-hmm. I couldn't because there was a battle going on between lawmakers in New York about who should do marriage records and who shouldn't. So there was a period of time nothing was done at all. Of course. No oh records were kept. Bureaucrats. Yes. <laughs> so needless to say, the couple separated. As far as I can tell, they never divorced. Edward moved to Philadelphia, where he died in 1907 of apoplexy at the age of 62. Annie remained in Michigan for a time with three of her daughters, one of whom died in 1900 at the age of 15, and one who married in 1902. By 1914, Annie and daughter Laura found themselves in Montana, where Annie would die in 1921. Interestingly enough, there may be two tombstones for Annie. Really? Yes. One where she died in Montana and one in Ypsilanti, Michigan, with the names of all her children. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So one place she's buried and the other place is more of a memorial stone or? Or maybe the family. They moved her burial to Ypsilanti. I don't know. To be closer to some of the children that she did have to bury. Okay. That I'm not sure on. Wow. Um, Her daughter that she was with in Montana married Otis Willard Freeman in August 1914 in Lewiston, Montana. They had four children. Otis was an academic who earned a doctorate in geography from Clark University in 1929. He was even on the faculty of the University of Hawaii for a time. That's cool. It's kind of fun because you can see the uh, ship manifest for the whole family going to Hawaii and then the whole family coming back. Wow. From Hawaii, the family ended up settling in Shaney, Washington, when Otis joined Eastern Washington University as a faculty member. Then from 1951 to 1953, he was president of said university. And Otis Willard, um, and all of a sudden I blanked on his last name. (gasps) Anyhow, he has his own Wikipedia page. So if you want to know about Otis Willard Freeman, he's right there. Wow. And he published a great deal, has several books he published, one dealing with Hawaii, Wow. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go to one of their uh, the other children of Edward and Anna, Harriet Cowell. Harriet married William Hamilton Fowler. So this would be Ted's great grand aunt. Okay. And they had four children. The oldest was James Cowell Fowler, who was born in 1903. And it's a very sad story I ran across. He got married and he was working as a janitor at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. And one day at work, he was found after he hanged himself in the hospital bathroom. Oh, my God. Yes, awful. The next child was George H. Fowler, who was born in 1904. And by, I think it was 1910, 
1910, he was placed in the Michigan Home and Training School in Lapeer, Michigan. Hmm. This is also known as the Lapeer State Home, home for the feeble-minded. I did a little deep dive into learning more about this home and training school. It first opened in June 1895 as the Michigan Home for Feeble-Minded and Epileptic. It started with 131 inmates. By 1919, there were 1,500 patients. Wow. And it peaked at 4,600 by 1955. Wow. Yeah, it closed in the fall of 1990. Most of the buildings have been demolished. Newer buildings were refurbished under a grant, and today the property belongs to a community college. In 2000, a lawsuit was filed by Frank Aslan against the state, a former resident who was there from 1932 to 1944, so from the age of six until 18. His claim was that he and over 2,000 other people were sterilized as part of state policy. Oh, my God. Yeah. The case was dismissed due to statute of limitations. Oh, my God. Now, I have no idea why George would have been committed because when it first opened, there were no requirements to live there. Men might even commit their wives, not always returning for them. You know, if she was having that time of the month or she's going through menopause, she was crazy. Mm-hmm. Orphans and children's parents who couldn't care for them were often placed there. Mm-hmm. Some people never left since there was no policy or test to determine if you could leave for a number of years. Wow. After ca- yeah. After a case of false imprisonment in 1913, the state passed a law requiring testing. A residents put before a judge to determine if they should be released. The state law on sterilizations that I mentioned just before was passed in 1913 for mental defectives. Mm-hmm. Family members were required to be notified in case of objection before sterilization was carried out. The law was challenged in 1918 and was overturned by a local court, but was upheld by the Michigan Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. There's a plaque in front of the Lapeer Courthouse, apparently to this day, commemorating the decision by the Michigan wow. State Supreme Court. The practice didn't end until the 1970s. I got all oh this information gosh. from the Asylum Project and an article from thecitizenonline.com by C.J. Camacho. Mm-hmm. Now, well, I, you know, forced sterilization, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's that whole eugenics movement. And so, so many people were yeah. sterilized because they were immigrants, because, you know, their husband wanted them to be, or their family, you know, just felt that, you know, in fact, for some women, if they were arrested, for example, on prostitution, they would be forcibly sterilized because any of their children would obviously be unfit. Um, And, you know, with Native American women, Mm, they would forcibly sterilize them and then not tell them, you know, so they were just going, hey, why aren't I having any more children? And they wouldn't find out for years and years and years that they'd been sterilized. Yeah. So, now, fortunately, we have somewhat better laws now, but there's still compulsory sterilization in the United States. Yes. Now, this George Fowler, so he's basically committed by the time he's six years old. He died at the age of 12 years old in the hospital of pneumonia. Um, their third child was Louis Fowler. He died at 19 months of heart failure. Oh. He was born in 1905, died in 1907. And he was died, and I, I need to say this: he, was, he died in January 1907, because number four was born in December 1906. So he died a month after his sister was born, and she died six months later of brain fever. Oh my gosh, that poor family. Yes. So, and 
I, I can't imagine. So all the children, or at least most of their children, passed away. So we're going to go back over, and we're going to go to George Cowell. That is Edward's, Edward Roland Espinette's father, the one, the immigrant from England. And so could you really quick go back from the line from Ted Bundy, how it relates to this person? Just because okay. I'm starting to get a little confused with all the names. I don't blame you because it does get very confusing. So it goes to Ted to his mother, Louise, then Samuel's his grandfather. William Foote is his great grandfather. Edward Roland Espinette is his great, great grandfather. And we're talking about George Richard Cowell, his third great grandfather. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. I was about to do that myself anyway. <laughs> I was getting confused myself. <laughs> I asked a relevant question. Gold star yes, for me. Very relevant. <laughs> um, anyhow, he had terrible luck with his wives. He first married Elizabeth Akid Espinette in May 1840 in Tinterden, Kent. But she died within a year during childbirth. The child did not survive. Mm. Then he married Elizabeth's cousin, Aditha. Aditha being... Hold on. Edward Roland Espinette's mother. Okay. They had three children prior to coming to the United States, then added two daughters once in Ohio. Sadly, Aditha died after the birth of their youngest. George would marry again within two years, Charlotte, but they had no children. Wow. Other than the personal struggles, George was very successful when he got to Ohio. Before he had first married in England, he had apprenticed under his father, Matthew. So this would be Ted's fourth great-grandfather as a brewer. And he kept up with that business for a while. And then I read something that indicated that he saw some issues with people getting drunk and it bothered him. So he stopped brewing. Oh, oh. so thus the death of the fun part of the family. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. But once in the U.S., George first worked, it seems, as a grocer, at least according to the census. But then he became involved with starting a jewelry store. And he had his son, Henry, join him in this business that became known as H. Cowell and Company. Hmm. Actually, and it was his son, Herbert. I think I might have said the wrong name, but it was his son, Herbert. The business went through many incarnations, growing even after George died. Mm -hmm. In 1964, Bailey, Banks, and Biddle from Philadelphia acquired controlling interest in the jewelry store. And soon after, Zales purchased the Philadelphia firm and became the owner of the company, that, which was now called Cowell and Hubbard. And so if we have any listeners from Cleveland, I'm sure they're going, oh my gosh, I know that. <laughs> because this was a big local company. And it's so big. <laughs> I mean, they still kind of exist to this day. I believe Zales owns the jewelry stores and that's called Zales. However, the original jewelry store at its original location is now a fine dining restaurant called Cowell and Hubbard. Interesting. Well, so I have to say I was going Bailey Banks and Biddle. I know that name. And uh, there was actually a, a Bailey Banks and Biddle in my hometown, which oh. was in Indiana. So, um, because Zale for a while just ran, went ahead and ran it, uh, some jewelry stores under that trademark. But I was just like, wait a second, I know that. <laughs> so my goodness, these corporate takeovers. I know it just, his business became like a family business for a long time. Mm -hmm. His son might not have stuck with it. He left Ohio clearly, but <laughs> 
everybody else stuck around and those who stuck around did fine for themselves. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, George's wife was Aditha Espinette and she was the daughter of David Espinette and Aditha Lampere, L-A-M-P-E-R-T. So I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. That sounds French. Yes. And even Espinette, I believe would be French and I'm probably butchering it as probably Espinay or Eh. it's got two T. So I think it's at. Okay. I don't, I didn't take French. Yeah. My, and even my, so, I mean, families always pronounce their names differently depending on who you're talking to. So pronounce it how you, your heart is called. There you go. Well, uh, sadly, Aditha died at the age of 34 in 1826, leaving four young children, much like her namesake and daughter. David married three years later, Margaret Stoneham, and they had six children. For a brief tenure in the 1840s, David Espinette served as mayor of their town, Tinterden, Kent, England. Hmm. I could continue on because the Espinette line has been well-researched and written about. The line goes back to the Dancés who lived near the Biscayne coast in western France, France in the 1600s, an area just north of Bordeaux. This family of merchants were Huguenots who became refugees fleeing from France and settling in England between August 1681 and December 1687. I was making a bet with myself in my head (laughs) that French names ending up in England. I wonder if they're Huguenots. And they are. I win. Gold star for the day. Uh (laughs) For our audience who might not be aware of Huguenots, they were basically um, Protestants who lived in France, which was very Catholic. They were persecuted for their faith, and so they escaped and became refugees going to England where they were Protestants themselves, So, and they were very anti-Catholic. Mm-hmm. The Espinettes also came from the same area, living in the small village of Port d'Envu, Port I don't know how to pronounce this, spelled E-N-V-A-U-X. They became refugees as well around 1690. That's as far back as we're going to go there. There's so much there. And there is a website for the Espinette family where they've actually written a book called The Huguenots of America. And you can read all about it. And I'll include that link Ooh. on our website if people are curious about them. Um, let's go forward again back to William Foote Cowell, Ted's great-grandfather, and more specifically to his wife, Julia Florence Neck. Julia was born in May 1875 in Deerfield, Illinois, to immigrant parents John Necht and Henrietta Schneider, both from Germany. Now, I found the following on Find a Grave about John Necht, who was born in 1835 and died in 1926, so he lived a very long life. He immigrated in 1853 and worked as a wagon maker. He acquired a lot of land in Deerfield and started his own carriage shop and general store and became very influential in the area. In 1915, though, when hostility turned against the Germans, right before the start of World War I, although I believe it escalation, things had already escalated in Europe at that point, his son, their sons changed their last name to Knight. Oh, interesting. His wife, Henrietta, so Julia's mother, was the sister of Reverend John Schneider of the Illinois Conference of the Evangelical Church. It was a German-speaking church denomination within Northern Illinois from the 1840s to 1937. And the family was associated with a Bishop R. Dubs, who was apparently well-known at the time. Hmm. And there is a book uh, called The History of Deerfield, Illinois by Marie Ward Reichelt um, that was published probably around 1930 
for the American Legion, and they do a little profile on the next family. Another early settler, landowner, and merchant with good business eye and sound German sagacity was John Necht. He was born in Machtelsheim, near Ulm, Kingdom of Wartenburg, Germany, in 1835 and came to America in 1853. In Chicago, in June 1859, he married Henrietta Schneider, who was born in Zippenfeld, Kingdom of Bavaria, Germany, in 1842. And the reason I'm saying Kingdom of and the reason the author did it was because at that time, Germany was not a unified country. It was broken up into kingdoms. And there was a lot of time of revolution during that period. And that's when you had a lot of Germans starting to come to the U.S. in the 18, early 1850s, late 1840s mm-hmm. to escape the revolutions and all the fights between all the kingdoms. Let me continue on. Um, but basically, John Eck was very successful. I don't know what he came from from Germany, but he had enough business sense that when he settled in Deerfield, he had a very successful business and successful life for his family. Very cool. Now we're going to go back to Ted's grandmother, the wife of Samuel, Eleanor Miriam Longstreet. She was born in February 1895 in Philadelphia, living her whole life there. Her parents were James Aaron Longstreet and Louisa Elizabeth Clifford. Elizabeth was the third of seven children. And I've got to tell you about some of her siblings because some of them are amazing. You know, and as I was going through the tree, I kept thinking Ted Bundy had the potential to be great, but he made a choice Mm -hmm. to murder instead. Right. Because he had the talent. He was very smart. He had the smarts and he had the familial support, it sounds like, because, Mm -hmm. and and it also kind of sounds to a degree that the family kind of expected greatness. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was great at one good thing. I'm sorry, one bad thing. But he was the best at it. (laughs) Yes, he was. Put a lot of time and effort into it. Okay, so this would be um, Ted's great aunt, Eleanor's sister, was, and the oldest in the family was Hattie Longstreet. She was a talented artist winning local contests. She was so talented that she studied at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts and later the Academy Calabrasi in Paris. She married Will Price and became known professionally as Hattie Longstreet Price, an illustrator of children's books, including two books by Louisa May Alcott, Eight no Cousins way. and Rose and Bloom. Oh my gosh, say those titles again because I think I talked over you. That's okay. Eight Cousins and Rose and Bloom. That is so cool. Um, she died in Chicago in 1968. Wow. Mm-hmm. There's more. The second sibling was Roland Clifford Longstreet. He was born in 1893. And he was at one time a professional basketball player from 1914 to 1924. Long before the NBA, he was known as Rolo Longstreet. Ah, I love that. He he had a great professional life thereafter, and he died in 1972. The other siblings were James Russell Longstreet, Edward Gilbert uh, Longstreet, Ruth Longstreet Eckville, that's her married name, and Robert Spencer Longstreet. Their father, James Aaron, was a coal salesman for the Lehigh Valley Coal. He was born in October 1862 on Staten Island, New York, son of James Morford Longstreet and Anne Eleanor Howes, an immigrant from Liverpool, England. Wow. Now, the Longstreets go far back in the United States um, to at least the mid-17th century in New York then known as New Amsterdam. 
And before I get too deep into that family, I do want to go back to just James Aaron Longstreet a bit because I noticed in the paper, this is a family that did well. So he's selling coal. He's doing very well for the family. Enough that they were spending summers and occasional weekends throughout the year in Ocean City, New Jersey. Mm. They were going to the shore, like they call it there. Nice. And it's possible that they owned a summer residence because you would see, oh, guess who's coming to the shore this weekend? Who are we going to see? And this is in the Philadelphia paper at the time. So I found that entertaining. Uh, so like I said, the Longstreet's go pretty far back. Now, as I'm trying to research James Longstreet and look for him in the paper, I kept running into another James Longstreet, a general James Longstreet from the Confederate States of America. He was a Confederate general born in Georgia. And I'm like, could they be related? And it turns out they are. That general would be a distant cousin of Ted Bundy's since they share one common ancestor by the name of D. Stoffel Dirksen Longestreet, who was born around 1666 in New York. He was the son of the original ancestor, Dirk Stoffelsen, who likely arrived in 1657 from the Netherlands and originally settled in Amir's Fort, which is now known as Brooklyn. Wow. Mm -hmm. Now, the Longstreet family all moved and settled and ended up settling in Monmouth, New Jersey, and were there for generations. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't still some Longstreet's there. With at least, I mean, I know he goes that far back, but there was... James Longstreet went to James Longstreet and Mary Ann Dent, who were the parents of General James Longstreet, and it just keeps going. And they had also lived there. To this day, you can go and visit the original Longstreet farm where Ted's ancestors from lived. It is a part of the park system in Monmouth, New Jersey. Wow. And it's a living farm. So you can visit and as a living farm, it would have animals you can do, but it has some of the original buildings. Oh, that's cool. Because it was built in around 1750. Wow. So I, his, his heritage is very deep. Yes. And this is just the one side of the family. Yeah. Now, Could if, you, in, oh, go ahead. I mean, if his grandfather really is his father, this is as deep as we can go. But <laughs> I really hope that's not the case. Same. You know, it's, although honestly, we could find out because they have his DNA and their DNA would say who the father was. If the father was actually his grandfather. There's a part of me that hopes that Carol Ann Boone's daughter, if she really is Ted Bundy's daughter, and I have no reason to doubt it, wouldn't have some DNA genealogical DNA done to figure out who mm -hmm. it is. I, yeah. I'm no, I'm curious. Mm -hmm. But I don't think she's going to do it just on our behalf, though. So oh, man. That. And we can't write to her because nobody knows where she is. No, and I wouldn't want to bother her. I can't oh, imagine. Yeah. Um, going back to James Aaron Longstreet. So this is his great-grandfather. His wife was Louisa Clifford. And she was born in 1870 in Hinckley, England. She immigrated on the ship, the City of London, that arrived on the 22nd of April, 1873, before her third birthday in New York City. Her family was from a town called Stoke Golding, England. Her parents were Samuel Clifford and Louisa Elizabeth Spencer. Samuel was the son of Thomas and Eleanor Kirkland. Eleanor was the daughter, yeah, 
So I'm sorry. I, I, I was getting myself confused. Samuel is the son of Thomas Spencer and Eleanor Kirkland. Eleanor okay. was the daughter of a Matthew Kirkland and Sarah Jones, Ted's fourth great grandparents. And I found a cool note on Matthew Kirkland because he was on the United Kingdom medal roll for 1815. Do you have any guess or any remembrance of history what he could have type of medal he could have earned in 1815? From the War of 1812? No, although that's a great guess. Um, Matthew Kirkland was a private on the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Regiment of Foot Guards under Lieutenant Colonel Charles Dashwood's company in the Battle of Waterloo. <gasps> no way. Yes. Wow. And he, there's actually medical records on him because during the battle, he had several wounds to his knee, um, a contracture of the knee, which meant it wasn't going the right direction, and a wounded right leg, and he oh was my. released. And there's a website called Waterloo 200 for the 200th anniversary of Waterloo. And it has a little description and biography on Matthew. And it said that he was born in Oakthorpe, Derbyshire in 1792 and listed as a private in March 1813. Fought in the Battle of Quatre Bras, Quatre Bras probably, in July 1815, two days before Waterloo. He was discharged due to his injuries on the 25th of June, 1816. He married Sarah Jones on June 3rd, 1817. They had 13 children. I'm sorry, 14? 13. 13. Wow, yeah, she's very generous to God. Yeah. Matthew worked as a framework knitter. Sarah died in 1867 and Matthew in 1881. Now, his granddaughter, Louisa Spencer Clifford, came to the United States with her family, her husband, Samuel, and their daughter, as well as her brother, Thomas, his family, on the same ship. They were next to each other on the same manifest. And nice. I, I also want to make another note. These are families that were fine together because they weren't necessarily in steerage either. They were in cabins. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. But she and her family and Thomas and his family all settled in Philadelphia. And they were the, I think that's right. So that's Louisa Spencer Clifford. Louisa and her brother were the children of Joseph Spencer and Hannah Woodward. And all evidence indicated that their parents stayed in England. I did track the Woodward line as far back as the birth of William Woodward, Hannah's grandfather, and Ted's fifth great-grandfather to around 1750 in England. It might have been a little oh. earlier. And I know I just screwed something up because I said her grandson, but Louisa Spencer Clifford was married to Samuel Clifford. I just need to get this straight so I'm not lying to my our poor listeners. So I'm going through the family tree really quick and looking. So, okay. I, I know why I got confused because, like I said, we run into naming patterns, and that's what I did. So you have Louisa Elizabeth Clifford, who married James Longstreet. And Louisa Elizabeth Clifford's mother was Elise, Louisa Elizabeth Spencer. Oh, my. And that's where I got confused. Mm -hmm. So she was married to Samuel Thomas Clifford, and it was... That's what I was talking about. There's so many Louisas and Eleanors, it's easy to get confused. That is what I have on the family of Ted Bundy. And I do have a surprise for you right now. Ooh, tell me. Is it candy? No. 
it's not that good. I have Ted Bundy's sophomore high school yearbook. And I'm going to try to show you his picture. It's going to be harder to see. I will make take a picture of this and blow it up. Can you see him? Um, which one is he? Is he the one on the corner? He's the one my finger's right next to. I can't see your fingers at all. Oh, well. Oh, there. Okay, I see him now. Oh, yeah. my. And in the yearbook, he's also on the student council. So how did you obtain this magical item? Well, my husband was going through this yearbook because it's his father's senior high school yearbook from Woodrow Wilson High School in Tacoma, Washington in 1963. So he was a classmate of your husband's dad. Basically, yes. But I mean, you should just see how big these classes are. They're huge. He was It's okay. I don't think your father-in-law is a serial killer. Oh, no. I, I'm pretty sure he's not. But he was two years behind um, my father-in-law. But, yeah. I mean, he, was a, he went to school with Ted Bundy. That is crazy. Which means they probably lived in the same general neighborhood. Yeah. For a time. And when you consider they think that his first murder was committed when he was 14 years old. Oh. He was going to school at the time with a murderer. I might have to talk to my father-in-law, see if he remembers that murder that happened at that time. Hmm. And That's I imagine it would have been absolutely a front page thing for weeks or months because that was an eight-year-old girl. Yes. So I'm sorry, eight month. I'm sorry, eight-year-old girl. Right. I thought I, said I, I would weeks. think he would remember Sorry. that. So yeah, and a special shout out to my in-laws because they're celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary this weekend. Oh, happy anniversary to them. So I think it's actually today, but I might have it wrong. Oh yeah, it is today. It's the fifth, isn't it? I oh, lose nice. track of days. <laughs> happy anniversary to them. I won't <laughs> sing anything else. Nobody wants to hear that. Not that I think they're listening to the podcast, but you never know. They might. <laughs> Somebody else might be listening and then call them and say, hey, we heard it was your anniversary on this yeah. podcast. Go, hey, we heard, you know, Denise talking about you. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> yeah. things, things get back to them. So I, I can imagine. <laughs> but that's Ted Bundy. Well, well, as always, this was an amazing episode. And I, that was fun. I just cannot believe you were able to find so much material in his genealogy. I know. And I'm busy working on the next one. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to be covering Dorothea Puente. Ooh, that's exciting. Yes. And I, I, I get the look from you. You have no idea who I'm talking about, do you? Not even a little bit. No. Oh, you'll love this one. How do you spell her last name? Um, <laughs> P-U-E-N-T-E, -E, I believe. Okay. And she's, you probably heard about her in the, oh, I've heard of somebody doing this type of thing. But yeah, mm. she's, um, she's got her challenges. But I had done a lot of the tree research before, and now I'm going through and putting things together. I remember this. See, I, I knew you would remember it once. Oh, my gosh. Because there, um, there was an old movie about something similar to this. Mm -hmm. This will be fun. Yes. And this is upon a special request of a friend who, when I put out there that I was going to be creating this podcast, I'm like, is there anybody you would like to hear about? And she was one of the first ones to go, I want to hear about her, Dorothea Puente. So we, we, we're going to talk about her. 
Um, her tree's kind of, so far, I mean, it's, there's some interesting things, but it's nothing deep of murder as like some other ah. trees. But she screwed up enough for everybody else, so I think that works. Um, ah, so that's funny. All I can say is to our listeners and such is maybe we'll find skeletons in your family during this podcast as we go along. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine listening going, oh, wait, that's my, wait. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, and you know, everybody's family tree has somebody with questionable behavior in it. Oh, everybody. I know. I, I have stories I could tell about um, the Scott side of my family. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. They used to be neighbors with a woman by the name of Belle Starr. <gasps> no way. Yes. I know who Belle Starr is. Yes. I mean, they were neighbors with her parents and knew of her. Yes. And they, they were not very thrilled with, they were very much pro-slavery. Oh God. And there might have been a house burned down that they were involved with and they had to run to Texas to hide, but you know. Oh my God. We all have those family members and skeletons we'd like to hide. Yeah. I don't I hide have... behind it though. I own it. Yeah. I have a couple of folks in my deep family history so if we're talking like you know early 1800s mid 1800s who you know like in one place the guy like killed this guy who'd raped his sister then went over the state line and became sheriff in the county so it's just you just never know where you're going to end up in this world. And for a long time, he needed killing was a valid reason to kill somebody. So yeah. without the way a court, I see it, if it wasn't for my ancestors, no matter how awful they were, I wouldn't be here without them. So, absolutely. We are the result of the love of thousands of people, yeah. which is humbling in a way and also terrifying. But there you have it. And if we can learn from history and not make the same mistakes they did, I consider us winners. Amen, sister. Well, you have a good evening. Thank you. And we'll you be back well. again in a couple of weeks. That sounds great. Have a good weekend. Bye. Okay, you too. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.